I think one of the most amazing pieces of history is the collection of letters that were written between John Adams and his wife, Abigail. If you've ever read the book, David McCullough's John Adams, you'll know that that book would be significantly shorter and uh, weaker in content and power without those letters. The count, I think, is 1,060 letters that they exchanged, starting with their courtship in 1762 and going all the way through John's vice presidency and then his term as president of the United States all the way up till 1801. When you read the letters, you will see that <clears throat> they're, they're very warm. They're informative, giving us great insight into the times. Uh, they are frank and sometimes humorous and at other times very mundane. John wrote about being in the Continental Congress and much we know about what happened during that time comes from his letters sent back home. He wrote about his experiences in Europe as a diplomat and of course his times as in his political career. Abigail, whose mind was just as bright if not brighter than John's and kept him going, wrote about the farm and the family and how the Revolutionary War was affecting Boston where they lived just outside in Braintree. Those are amazing letters when you look at them. One letter John wrote in November of uh, 1800 when he had just entered into a new house, presidential house, that was built for the leader of our country. We now call it the White House. He actually penned these famous words and they've been etched in the White House. I think they're still there today when he said, may none but honest and wise men rule under this roof. That's a great prayer. How impoverished history would be without these letters. Much of it forgotten, vital lessons lost. And when I think of those letters, I think of the letters of the Apostle Paul. He wrote 13 of them, unless you give him the book of Hebrews, and that would make 14. Amazing letters to churches, to friends, to pastors. Letters that are frank and informative. Letters that are warm and at times even humorous and bring a tear to your eye. And how impoverished we would be as a church without the letters of the Apostle Paul. Of course, they're the inspired word of God take anything away from this book and we are in big trouble and so we want to begin studying the book of second timothy which is a very personal letter a very warm letter from the mentor the apostle paul to his mentee young timothy second timothy and let me just read the first seven verses to you 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God 
whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I might be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. We'll end our reading there. You might ask the question, how come we are eavesdropping into a private conversation? Um, actually, all of us like to do that from time to time. Maybe we shouldn't, but we, there's something interesting about that. But this is not just a private letter. It's not just personal correspondence. It is that, but it's more than that because it was intended to be read to the church. And of course, God intended that this scripture would come to us today as part of the canon of the Holy Word of God so that we would be guided and directed in our lives. So we're not eavesdropping, as it were. We are entering into a warm relationship between two individuals. It doesn't have to be a, a, a man and another man, a younger man whom he calls his son. It could be a woman and some other woman that she's mentoring in the gospel. But there's a lot of lessons for us to learn here. But I want to start out with this idea uh, that 2 Timothy is about Paul. He's the one who is passing on. He's passing off the scene. And then Timothy, the one who is staying on. You think of an older man passing on something to a younger man so that they can take the baton. Stand in the gap, be the new leader, and direct the church. It's interesting that Paul starts out the letter from a position of authority and he ends the letter in uh, a position of, well, he acquiesces to the will of God. A position of surrender to the fact that he will soon be done. He says in chapter 4, verse 7, I have finished. I have kept the faith. I have finished the fight. I saw a gravestone one time that had this little poem on it. A fight well fought, a race well run. A faith well kept, a crown well won. That's a great description of what we have in 2 Timothy. So we want to look at the Apostle Paul first, uh, just a little bit, the, the one who's passing on the scene. And there are those of us in our years as we go through life who are now in a position, hopefully, to impact the next generation, hopefully to have something to pass on. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul has. Now to give you a little background, when we studied Ephesians, Paul was in prison. Remember that? And in prison, he wrote two other letters. He wrote uh, the letter, or maybe three, 
other letters. He wrote uh, Philippians and Colossians and probably the personal letter to Philemon. All are called prison epistles. But Paul was released from that imprisonment in Rome. It was more like house arrest. He had a great deal of freedom. And when you come to the book of Acts, that's Paul under house arrest, having people come to him day after day, sharing the gospel and explaining the wonders of Christ, proving that Jesus is indeed the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. Paul then went on his fourth missionary journey after he was released from prison. And we don't have all the details, but we can fill in some of the gaps as we read about his desires to go to different places. He probably wrote 1 Timothy during this period of time after his first imprisonment. But somewhere, probably around 66 AD, Paul was re-arrested. He wrote the book of Ephesians in the early 60s. He writes 1 Timothy probably in 64. And then a couple years later, he is rearrested under the infamous reign of the Roman Empire, uh, Roman Emperor Nero. Nero had it in for believers. And he arrested the Apostle Paul. Now Paul is not under house arrest with the liberty to have guests come in and, and with some freedom to come. Go under guard. Now he is in a prison. William Hendrickson says. Is nothing more than a single hole in the ground. It's an underground dungeon. The hole is the hole in which they put the prisoners into the dungeon. It also is the only source of light and air. And if you go to Rome today, they'll show you the Mamertine prison, which fits all of these descriptions and could be the actual place where Paul was imprisoned. We don't know. Some of these prisons were hooked up to the city sewer system. And they would allow the prison to get rather full. And then it was when it was time to clean it out, they would open up the gates and the sewer system would actually wash the prisoners out to sea, drown them. They'd shut the gates and fill up the prison again. Now that didn't happen to the Apostle Paul because uh, I think tradition tells us quite clearly that Paul was taken a few miles outside of the city of Rome and because he was a Roman city, a citizen was given the privilege of being beheaded which was much better than the other kinds of deaths that they gave to criminals. Who was this guy, Paul? Well, he was an evangelist. He's now a prisoner and soon to be a martyr. When we read the, the verses here, I think there are three things that at least come to my mind about Paul. First of all, he is an apostle and he states that in the very first verse. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This is a very powerful word. And you need to understand that in the New Testament, it's used in three different ways. Once it's used to talk about someone simply being sent. So we could use it about our Thailand team. They are being sent. It's the Greek word for sending someone on a mission, on, a, on an errand. And it's only used, I think, once or twice in, in that context. Secondly, it's used a few times to talk about local church delegates 
who are sent to represent their church at a meeting of, uh, of all the churches, uh, especially delegates that would be sent to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. But it's also used, as you well know, to refer to the twelve who were the apostles. And they were the ones who lived with Christ, heard Christ, and were witnesses to Christ. Now Paul is like one of the twelve, but one born out of due time. He did see Christ in a vision later on on the road to Damascus. And he makes it very clear he's, a, he's an apostle not by the will of man. It's not by the will of the church. He's an apostle by the will of God. We don't have apostles today like the twelve or like Paul. And it really is a misnomer to call yourself an apostle unless you mean simply in the sent one, in the sense of being sent to share the gospel. And in that sense, all of us should be apostles. By the way, nine in nine of the 13 letters of Paul, he talks about the fact that he's either called to be an apostle or it's an apostle by the will of God or God has commanded him to be an apostle. He knows exactly what he's doing and he brings authority. And his authority, the apostolic authority, is stamped upon the entire New Testament just like the prophetic authority of the old prophets is stamped upon the old covenant the Old Testament. So he's a man with authority. And notice his commission has to do with the promise of life. Verse 1. I love that description of the gospel. It's the promise of life. Now if you don't know you're dead, it doesn't sound maybe so inviting. But if you realize that you're a sinner and the wages of sin is death, if you get a grip on the fact that it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment, you want to know something about life. And the gospel is the promise of life. Abundant life here, eternal life here to come. And so the Apostle Paul is very much concerned about using whatever authority, authority he has to proclaim the wonderful message of life, the life that God has promised. Notice he also says, too, that he is, verse 3, serving as his forefathers did with a clear conscience. Now, some people might wonder, why does Paul connect himself with his forefathers when he seemed to go against the scribes and Pharisees. But what you have to remember is that Paul saw Christianity and the gospel not as a new religion, but as the ordained sequel to Judaism. Paul saw Christianity as the fulfillment of everything that was said in the law and in the prophets. And so he's now fulfilling what the forefathers proclaimed, what his ancestors declared, the wonderful hope and the promise of God. But this apostle is lonely. <laughs> you say, where do you get that? Well, look at chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I, I recall your tears, Timothy. And that's probably the last time they parted. Their relationship had grown to be uh, so wonderful in friendship and partnership that there was great emotion when they parted. 
But he says, I long to see you so that you, so that I may be filled with joy. Now add to that what you read in chapter 4. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Demas has forsaken me, deserted me. In fact, when you go down to verse 16, at my first defense, and so he's already been before court once, and maybe the sentence has already been given but not yet executed. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but everyone deserted me. Paul's alone. And I don't care who you are, I don't care how long you've been a believer, if you are a lost of friends, if you are alone and deserted, and it seems like everyone has let you down, that's a lonely place to be. So in a sense, Paul might have been thinking of Psalm 42. Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. But we need friends. And so Paul is longing to be reconnected with one of his most reliable friends, Timothy. We'll say a little bit more about friendship in a moment, but there's one final thing about Paul, and that is simply to say he's done. And he knows he's done. Look at chapter 4. We often use this portion of scripture in funerals. Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 4, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. In the Old Testament, uh, there were animal sacrifices. And of course, the blood would be offered. And the drink offering was sometimes that blood being poured on the altar or around the base of the altar. It was in the sense, it, it was... It was indicative of life flowing out. And Paul said, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. The persecution that I have been through, the punishment that I have endured, I'm being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. The Greek word is exodus. I'm about ready to make my exit. Paul had a different view when he wrote uh, the prison epistles, he had every hope that he would be released. I will see you again, was his conviction. Not now. He's done. I fought the fight. I finished the race. And it's over. But 2 Timothy is not so much about finishing well. If you focus on Paul, that's what you would say. But 2 Timothy is more about the one who is leaving, making sure that the one who is staying is prepared to give it all he's got. And that's why I want you to turn to chapter 2. And I think, at least for me, this is kind of the heart of this short little letter. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 20, in a great house... There are instruments or vessels of gold and silver and also wood and clay. So some have noble purposes and others have ignoble purposes. Some for honor, some for dishonor. If anyone cleanses themselves from these things, and you have to go back into the chapter and read about some of the things that Paul was warning others about, sins and 
things that uh, defile the soul and the life, if you will cleanse yourself from these, then you can be a vessel, an instrument for honor, for noble purposes, made holy and useful to the master, prepared for every kind of good work. And so I take the title from this series simply from verse 21, Useful to the Master. As we go through this wonderful letter, we're going to see what Paul highlights as being vitally important, essential for being useful. In fact, there's a great illustration in biography at the end about someone who was not profitable and then becomes profitable and that individual is a wonderful template for our own lives, especially for us who have fallen, us uh, who are sinners and broken, to know that our failure is not final and we can be recovered. We can be renewed. We can be encouraged. So that's the Apostle Paul who's saying goodbye and he's done. By the way, when I was putting this sermon together, it hit me. If I talk in these terms, some of you think I'm going to be resigning today or at the end of the series. And that's not my plan. The Lord knows. I hope I can stay a, a few more years. But these are things that need to be said before a pastor goes on. And it's a vital portion of scripture for us to grab hold of. So that's the guy who's leaving. Now let's look at the guy who's staying. Timothy is staying on. Much younger than the Apostle Paul. In fact, we can build a, a little bit of a profile of Timothy from both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. First of all, he's young. Uh, it's, it says in uh, 1 Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Remember that verse? And in 2 Timothy, he'll say, flee youthful lust. Now, you don't have to be young to battle with youthful lust, but it indicates that Timothy's younger. And, and when I say young, probably he's probably in his 30s now. He might have been in his 20s when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, but he's now in his 30s, and I'm convinced that's extremely young. Another thing about Timothy we read is that he was sickly or at least on this occasion, because Paul wrote to him and said, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Remember that verse? Oh yeah, I remember that. Someone will say, that's my life verse. Take a little, <laughs> take a little wine for your stomach. Now we don't know if Timothy was always sick, but we know he was sick at this point, and there are medicinal uses for alcohol. And uh, it, it, Paul says, you know, stop <laughs> avoiding that take it and, and maybe it will help you he was probably somewhat sickly and then throw on to that he was timid God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear I suppose in our modern terms we would say he was an introvert uh, he wasn't aggressive he was kind of laid back somewhat hesitant to jump in? Does that sound like anybody here today? I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But some of you will say, I'm a little more like Paul. I'm that uh, A-type personality. You know, guns all going uh, and, and forward before I think. And, 
And uh, on we go to make a decision and get something done. It may be wrong, but we're going to do something. And then you've got the others who are a little more timid and afraid to move for fear of doing something wrong. And the one needs to be held back and the other needs to be encouraged to go on. One needs a yellow light, one needs a green light. And Timothy needed a green light. He needed a little bit of encouragement. And what I see here in this portion of scripture are some of the key things that Paul says Timothy has, has been given by God that will help him do the task that naturally it doesn't appear he should be able to do. When you're looking for a leader, you want all of those qualities, all of those perfect qualities. I just had a, a, a resume there looking for a pastor. They asked if I knew of anyone. And here's the profile of the pastor they're looking for. And of course, they're looking for someone who's perfect. It's unbelievable. Takes care of his family and spends 80 hours in the ministry. You know, doesn't neglect his family, but he's always working. <laughs> he's kind, but uh, you know, knows how to say no. And he's a leader, but he lets everyone else lead too. It's amazing. It's amazing. I want to write back and say that person doesn't exist. Paul and Timothy wouldn't be able to pastor that church. Young Timothy has some wonderful influences like you and I do. To make us useful to the master. Let me mention just three. The first of all, of all was a spiritual family. Now, this portion of scripture is really rich. In that it gives us a peek into Timothy's past. You almost have to go to Acts chapter 16. To read about what happened to Timothy. In Acts chapter 16 we read that Paul on his first missionary journey, actually in chapter 14, Paul went to Lystra and preached the gospel. And most likely, two women who were Jews came to faith in Christ. Maybe, maybe just one. Maybe it was just Lois who came to faith in Christ and then shared the gospel with her family, with her daughter, Eunice, and then ultimately with Timothy. When we come to Acts chapter 16, we read that Paul on his second mission came back to and there was a certain disciple there whose name was Timothy. He was the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. And simply the way that's described gives, gives the indication not only is this a mixed marriage uh, when it comes to religion and nationality, which would have posed many problems but most likely his father was not a believer but Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren and Paul wanted to take him with him on the trip and so that's what Paul did so Timothy has then according to 2nd Timothy chapter 1 a spiritual spiritual heritage that starts with his grandmother Lois and it's also in his mother Eunice and I am persuaded has been passed on to you. What has been passed on to you? The faith, the gospel. And it apparently, sincerely took hold. Do you see that description in verse 5? I am reminded of your sincere faith. 
It's sad, but we must give faith an adjective. There is dead faith. Where does that come from? James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. There's a dead faith. There's a pseudo faith. A false faith. There is a non-saving faith. That kind of faith does not save. But here is a genuine faith. And I ask you, what kind of faith do you have? It's not enough to say, I have faith. Your faith must be sincere and it must be specifically centered in the gospel, in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul's persuaded that real faith went through this family from generation to generation. Isn't that wonderful when the faith is passed on? And I look out and I see some generations even here where the faith went from one to another. That's our prayer. That's our hope. Timothy had a spiritual family that impacted him greatly. He wasn't a Christian simply because he was born in a Christian home. He was a believer because he put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing, this spiritual family that he had that encouraged him. Secondly, he has a spiritual father, and that is the Apostle Paul. If you go back to what Paul said about Timothy... He called him in verse 2, my dear son in the faith. Now in 1 Timothy, Paul simply calls him my son. Now he calls him my dear son. I don't think their relationship changed, probably deepened. But I think it's the emotion Paul feels as he's actually writing his last will and testament. And now when you realize you're near the end, are not your emotions heightened? And those relationships deepened. And now he says you are, the Greek word is beloved. It's from the word agapao, love. Timothy, you are my dearly beloved son. Paul was a, not a biological father, but a spiritual father. And we all need spiritual mentors. Even if we have a family of faith that we grew up in, in our nuclear, fam nuclear family, we want to have that mentor who steps into our life and shows us how to live as well as tells us how to live and is there to pick us up when we are down. And that's exactly what Paul did for Timothy. Did you notice the tears he mentions? I remember your tears. And I'm reminded of your faith. So Timothy, being somewhat timid, maybe was a little bit uh, emotional. But there's nothing wrong with shedding tears because the gospel should touch your heart. But these two guys were close. Thank God if you have close spiritual friends that you can weep with and rejoice with and learn with. And pray with. At times even to rebuke and correct and encourage. Praise God for those relationships. If you don't have them, find them. It's the only way you can keep on for the Lord. It's the only way you can be useful to the Master. And then the third thing is Timothy had a spiritual gift. For Paul says to him in verse 6, 
I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which was given to you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us, here's the same concept of gift, did not give us a spirit. It's really tough to know whether this is talking about Timothy's disposition or the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in one sense, it can go either way. For God did not give us the Holy Spirit who is timid. He's the spirit of power. He's the spirit of love. He's the spirit of a level head. And either way, it's the Holy Spirit who gives to us the disposition of power, love, and self-discipline. But Timothy had a gift, and each one of us have a gift. This falls right uh, uh, in line with our sermons of the last few weeks where we've been talking about every servant gifted, every believer gifted. If you're a Christian, you've been given a gift. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, maybe gave, along with the elders, and we read this in 1 Timothy 4, they put their hands on Timothy when he was commissioned to be a pastor. So it might be that they're talking about the fact that he was given the gift, the responsibility of this ministry in Ephesus. But the gift he has is really the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, I want you to fan it into a flame. Now our English implies that Timothy had let the flame go down. You're sitting around a campfire, it begins to go out, you've got to stoke the fire, you've got to add fuel to the fire, you've got to put air into it or, or get some air under it to get it roaring. And, and so people read this and they think, ah, Timothy is backslidden, Timothy's light is almost gone out and Paul's trying to get him to fan the flame. But that's not necessarily the case. It may simply be that Paul is saying to Timothy, keep the flame burning. Continue to fan the flame. So whether your flame is going out or whether it's burning brightly, you need to keep fanning it. Now this is an amazing truth to me. God Almighty gives you a gift, but it's your responsibility to cultivate it. It's your responsibility to grow it. He starts the fire, you've got to keep it burning. Is sanctification the work of the Holy Spirit alone? No. We are co-laborers with the Holy Spirit in this thing called sanctification. Your salvation is all the work of God. Your sanctification is God and you working. You must rely on Him, but you're responsible to fan the flame. And how sad it is when churches are filled with people who are willing to let the fire go out. Each one of us has a spiritual gift. And we need to take the responsibility to identify the gift, grow the gift, and use the gift. Power is a dynamic energy that comes from God. Love is a self-denying grace that ought to be in every believer and this idea of discipline is sometimes translated level-headedness in fact in chapter 4 Paul says to Timothy keep your head keep your head in every situation 
That's good counsel. Don't lose control or your senses, your sound mind. The Apostle Paul is ending and Timothy in one sense has a long way to go. But he's well prepared because of the history of the input of his family, because of his spiritual mentor who is still instructing him, and because of the spiritual gift that God has given him. It's time for Timothy to keep going. And it's time for us to keep going as well. Now the Apostle Paul, some people use a theme for this book, Finishing Well, but that makes Paul the major focus. I think useful to the master makes Timothy the major focus and the letter is about Timothy getting his act together to be brave and courageous for the glory of God. But there is someone who's ending and that's the Apostle Paul and he's finishing well. Look at chapter 4. We'll get to this in more detail. Uh, but the Apostle Paul says, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, verse 8, chapter 4, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who love his appearing. One of the best ways to plan your life is to start with the end in mind. How do you want to finish? How do you want to end? Would you like to hear the Lord Jesus say to you, well done? Thou good and faithful servant? Then like Paul, fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I hesitate as I began this series to say that this will be life-changing, but it could be. It could change our lives from one where we have something of a flickering flame to a life that is burning, where zeal is apparent and influence for the kingdom is extended. Help us, Lord, whether we're the ones on the side of leaving or whether we are the ones on the side of learning and staying to embrace these spiritual lessons so that we would be useful to the Master. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.